when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. On today's episode, I'm talking with Neil Mohan, the Chief Product Officer at YouTube. And there's a lot to talk about. YouTube is announcing a $100 million fund to begin paying creators who use YouTube Shorts, its competitor to TikTok. And YouTube as a whole continues to grow in massive ways. In Google's last earnings report, YouTube generated $7 billion in advertising revenue alone, which means it's a business that is now as big or bigger than Netflix. I actually want to talk about YouTube size for a minute, and I'll end with a silly example of how massive YouTube is. But just take a second and think about all of the things that YouTube represents on the internet. I've had so many conversations on this show with smart, interesting executives where what we were really talking about, one way or another, was competing with YouTube. For example, YouTube remains the default video hosting platform for the entire internet in a way that can feel almost invisible, like it's a utility. You wanna upload a video and share it with people? You go to YouTube. You wanna find a collection of funny TikToks or a celebrity Instagram story that you missed? You go to YouTube. It's also one of the largest search engines in the world. It's part of Google. So it's just where you go if you wanna fix your sink or get better at eyeliner. YouTube runs a linear TV service that competes with cable providers. There's a music streaming service. And on top of that, there are YouTubers the particular kind of influencer at the center of the creator economy. The people who've turned YouTube not only into a career, but into multi-million dollar businesses that extend into everything from merch drops to cheeseburger restaurants. When people talk about creators and the creator economy, they're often just talking about YouTube, how it works, the many ways it can be monetized, the kinds of celebrities it makes, and the pressure it puts on those people. I often joke that the life cycle of every YouTuber involves making a video where they describe how frustrated they are with YouTube, and I wanted to know how Neil feels about that and if he wants that to change. The YouTube algorithm itself pushes videos to have over-the-top titles and thumbnails and be at least 10 minutes long so advertising can be inserted. Is that the kind of product that the YouTube product is supposed to generate, or is that a feedback loop that Neil takes into account? These are huge questions for the creator economy. On top of all that, YouTube is a social platform full of user-generated content, 
at a size that is almost impossible to moderate. And what's particularly interesting is that YouTube's policy and moderation teams report to Neil, the head of product. That's an arrangement that appears to be unique in the entire industry. So we talked about content moderation. We talked about the recommendation algorithm, how it works, and what the goals for the team that run it are. And of course, we talked about content ID, YouTube's automatic copyright enforcement system that, uh, well, people don't love it, I think is fair to say. All of this is a lot for one app in one product. So here's my silly example of how big YouTube is and how hard it is to get a handle on the whole thing. At the end of this interview, we did a lightning round and I asked Neil for a bunch of features. You'll hear it. One of them was, hey, let me watch YouTube videos at 1.5 speed on my TV. And Neil said, sure, I've heard this request before. I'll look into it. Turns out that feature was shipped a month ago and neither of us knew about it because YouTube is so big. And so is this conversation. Okay, Neil Mon, Chief Product Officer at YouTube. Here we go. Neil Mon, you're the Chief Product Officer at YouTube. Welcome to Decoder. Great to be here, Nilay. We have a lot to talk about. There's a new monetization system for YouTube Shorts. It seems very interesting. It's a big program. You're a full participant in the creator economy. But I want to start at the beginning with some very simple questions. What does the chief product officer at YouTube do all day? Well, my responsibility is really to help run YouTube where I'm responsible for you know, all of our products, everything that you use as a viewer of YouTube, all of our creators use. I work very closely with our partners across Google in terms of solutions for our advertising partners. So all of our products from the main app to the kids app to the music app. And I'm also responsible for our trust and safety organization. So everything that has to do with our content policies, what governs the type of content that we allow in our platform, the content that we take down, we call them our community guidelines. And so my teams are responsible for that, as well as the design of our products, how they look and feel, how they work, critical user journeys. That's really what my team and I do all day, every day. It's unique, I think, among all the social platforms that trust and safety reports to product. I do want to dive on that, but just give me a sense of your day. Like, what kind of meetings are you in? I'm in a lot of meetings, everything from one-on-ones to very large meetings. Maybe I could give you a flavor of kind of a couple of sort of canonical meetings, which are really, in my view, sort of the critical decision-making meetings at YouTube as they relate to product. A lot of the types of meetings that I'm in are, are what we call product reviews. They are meetings that could be about any of our products or features across all of YouTube, oftentimes involving multiple surfaces, multiple teams. They're venues where we are able to get a status of how that particular product is doing in terms of its roadmap, development, is it ready to launch, et cetera. But they're critically decision-making meetings. And you know, by the time those types of decisions come to me, They've, of course, gone through, you know, multiple levels within my organization, haven't been able to get resolved for one reason or the other. Oftentimes, my job is to help tie break across them and make, you know, what is essentially a trade-off between whether we should do a feature this way, whether we should do it that way. That's typically, you know, kind of a 30-minute, 45-minute discussion. And we have lots of those throughout the course of a week. Give me an example. What's a, what's a tie you recently broke? The interesting thing about YouTube, which will sound obvious, but is actually something that's pretty fundamental to all of our product decisions. And in fact, many of our policy decisions is that it's an app, but it's really an ecosystem. That term gets used 
a lot in many ways. In the YouTube context, it means a balance between viewers, creators, advertisers, and partners that are all participants in our ecosystem. Oftentimes, we are making decisions in our products that have pretty big impact on all of those or some of those constituents. And so an example of some of those types of decisions are if we design the feature this way, is it going to be something that is easy for our creators to use and understand? Is it something that we need to put sort of front and center? Is it going to be cluttered that way? Is it something that we need to put behind a tap, for example, on the phone? For example, if you're a creator, one of the tools that you use a lot, in fact, you probably use it every single day, is called YouTube Studio. It's the place where you go to upload your videos. It's where you understand the stats around your videos. And so an example of a trade-off there is if we have a new metric that we're bringing to creators to measure the efficacy of how their videos are doing, you know, are they getting the audience they're looking for, et cetera, we can put that front and center or we can put that in a flow that might be behind a couple of clicks in a way where it might not be as prominent, but it's alongside other reports and metrics that make sense to the user. So that's an example of a relatively straightforward type of trade-off, but my teams are making, you know, hundreds of those types of decisions on a regular basis. And I think just pulling it back up from that sort of very specific example, what I try to do in terms of all of these meetings is really to establish principles. What is the framework or the set of principles by which we would make those types of decisions? You know, one of those North Stars is how effective, how useful it is for our creators based on their input, but also just based on the data that we see in terms of how they use it. Are they getting value out of it, et cetera? So I always ask this question, what's your decision-making framework? You led right into it. You've got some principles. What are the two or three core principles that come up in every decision for you? I think actually there's three critical things that every company or organization needs to think about when it comes to decisions. The first are our principles. And so I mentioned putting our creators first, putting our viewers first as sort of like a Uber North Star type principle. Another principle that comes up in the context of YouTube is YouTube is an open platform but it also has community guidelines. How do you balance those seemingly two competing principles? So that's an example of principles that go into decision-making. But I don't think it's just about principles in terms of good decisions. I think that there's a couple of other things that are, I think, just as important. The second is obvious, which are the people, people that make decisions. There are thousands of decisions being made across the YouTube organization every single day on behalf of our viewers and our creators, of course, I'm not making all of them. And so what's important there for me is to make sure that I have the right people throughout my organization to be able to make those decisions because I can't be there all the time. And the third thing, which I think often gets overlooked, but if I were to kind of put pen to paper and actually sort of write all of these down, I think is actually in some ways, actually the unsung hero, which are the processes by which you actually make those decisions. And so, you know, you and I just talked about one of those processes in the context of meetings, product reviews, how are they set up? What's the cadence? What's the criteria by which decisions should come to those types of meetings? How do you measure the impact of those decisions? You know, we have a process at YouTube called our OKR process. That's a quarterly, yearly kind of a process. And so I think those three things, principles, people, and then the processes by which you manage all of it go into any sort of effective decision-making framework. That's sort of how I think about things as it relates to my organization at YouTube. You mentioned people, you have a huge remit. How many direct reports do you have? I'd say I have about 
eight or nine direct reports. How is that structured? I have various leaders for the various product areas, many of which you would be able to guess, you know, from the outside. You know, we have teams of people, including a leader focused on tools for our creators. We have leaders that are focused on our trust and safety, both on the product side and on the operation side. I have a leader that's focused on overall design and kind of the UX and user research framework. Leaders focused on our core experiences, music, premium, YouTube TV. We have a leader who's focused on kind of what we call some of our vertical experiences, community experiences. You alluded to this at the top around YouTube Shorts. That's a new product. I have a leader that's focused on those types of community experiences. So it's roughly, it's roughly about eight or nine leaders. Yeah, so let's talk about shorts. YouTube is kind of an opaque organization sometimes. So it's, I wanted to start with the structure and then shorts is a new product that launched in India. It's now in the US and now it is at the top level of the YouTube app on the home screen. It's one click away and there's a new monetization system for it. That's a pretty fast waterfall of emphasis, right? It was in one market as a test. Now it's on the top level of the app. Now there's a monetization fund. Walk me through that process. You know, kind of the way I would, I would actually give you some, some insight into how all of this came about is actually, I go back 15 years to the very first video that was uploaded to YouTube, which is, you know, it's kind of a canonical famous video now, but me at the zoo, that was an 18 second video that was uploaded, you know, in the San Diego zoo. It was the genesis of YouTube. And, you know, back then, uh, the term user generated content was a new term 15 years later the world has evolved dramatically. And one of the biggest differences has been the mobile phone and creation on mobile devices. The fact that you have this incredible camera and all of these, you know, effectively incredible editing tools right there on your phone. And so if you kind of take that 18 second video that happened 15 years ago and sort of fast forward it to today, if something like that was being created today, how would it be done? Will it be done on a mobile device all the kind of editing horsepower would be right there on the device. You might be shooting it vertically instead of horizontally. And so putting myself and my team sort of putting themselves in the shoes of today's creators is really where shorts came from, which is unlike 15 years ago, if you were a creator just getting started on YouTube today, how would you go about doing that? And that was the kind of the key product insight or sort of genesis, if you will, of YouTube shorts. So you asked a couple of other questions in there in terms of how it got from that idea to where it is today. First of all, you know, as you know, YouTube is a global platform. Some of our largest and fastest growing markets are outside of the U.S. and North America. You mentioned one of them, India. Increasingly, I think, you know, we have to think about things in terms of really trying to launch globally as quickly as possible. That's always sort of been kind of a mantra at, at Google and, and YouTube, but we really want to live up to that with all of our products. And Shorts was an example of that, where, as you pointed out, we did launch in India first, and then we came to the U.S. And now, of course, it's global as, as of the last you know, couple of weeks. And so that was kind of a little bit of the insight in terms of why we, we decided to kind of go about that route. And um, we've seen growth globally across all of our markets as we've rolled out this product. I think uh, on the earning call, earnings call a couple of days ago, Sundar mentioned 15 billion views globally across shorts, and that number continues to grow. So that's how we got to where we are in terms of the core product. It is something that I think is critically important from a viewer standpoint, from a creator standpoint to the overall YouTube experience. You know, I've talked about that. Susan, our CEO, has talked about that in the past. 
And that's why you see its prominence in the app. That's why you see it as a tab. I would argue that there's other surfaces that, you know, from a user standpoint, uh, in some ways are even more important. You see it right below a video that you watch, right? You can tap that create icon right below a video. And that's actually what gives it sort of some of its YouTube flavor because it ties this new format shorts to existing videos in our platform. And, you know, I'm happy to share a little bit more about that. And then the third part of your question, which is monetization. I think this also ties back to sort of where YouTube came from, the genesis of YouTube. You know, there's a lot of conversation today about, you know, the new creator economy uh, that's almost sort of become a buzzword. I think, you know, sometimes people lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, YouTube has been in the creator economy business for over a decade, 14 years since we launched the YouTube partner program. In the last three years, we've paid out, you know, $30 billion plus to our creators. And the Shorts Fund, Shorts Monetization, this $100 million fund is really just another step in that journey and is really the first step in terms of figuring out what the long-term monetization program could look like for Shorts creators. And so that sort of, you know, hopefully puts that in a little bit of context. So sorry for the long answer, but I thought I'd give you kind of the full color. I'm here for it. I have uh, follow-up questions for everything you said. Let's start at the start. Your connection to the early days of YouTube and how you make my day at the zoo now, I buy it. I have a more cynical version of the story, though, and I want you to clarify for me. The more cynical version is Snapchat launched stories, and then Instagram launched stories, and then WhatsApp launched stories, and then YouTube launched stories, and then LinkedIn launched stories, and now there's stories everywhere. And then TikTok came out, and TikTok is a cultural phenomenon, and now there's something that looks exactly like TikTok in Instagram, and there's shorts, which looks exactly like TikTok in YouTube. And that feels like a, maybe an unfairly cynical reading, but it's also definitely the correct timeline. So do you think of shorts as a direct competitor to TikTok? Um, so let me, let me, uh, I'll put it in context sort of from my perspective, thinking about things from a creator standpoint. So, you know, you're a video creator, you're a creator that's looking to build an audience. Personally, I believe that it's really great that there's lots of platforms, lots of choices, lots of different ways that you can build an audience. And I would argue that all of these platforms, while they might seem similar in many ways are fundamentally very, very different. But I actually think that's great for creators because it gives them a diversity of, of options. And so that's what I would say first and foremost. I would just say that the lens through which we look at the shorts product is really through the lens of simple, fast, easy, but powerful mobile creation. It really is about, as opposed to 10 years ago, where you would have a camera, you'd have a tripod, you'd set it up, you know, in your family room or in your backyard or in your bedroom and uh, you would start vlogging. I really think the world is very different. And as you know, many parts of the world are sort of leapfrogging that generation completely with the prevalence of mobile phones and the power on those devices, Android, iOS, et cetera. And I really do look at what we're doing with shorts through that lens. And I think that the roadmap that we have will also sort of prove out that we're thinking about it sort of along those pieces. And so, you know, when you think about it through a mobile creation lens, there's lots of pieces that might at the highest level seem similar. But then when you scratch below the surface, I think hopefully our users and our creators will start to see many of the things that make YouTube shorts unique to YouTube. And so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of those. And by the way, the shorts product, I love it. Obviously I watch lots of shorts every day, but it is by no means feature complete. There's a lot more work that we have to do. And, you know, I'll be the first to say that up front. 
But there are a couple of features that I'll call out that you can see already that I think are sort of leaning into that sort of unique YouTube aspect. The first is the ability to take any audio sample from an existing kind of video on YouTube and uh, mix that into a short. That is the glue between this new product shorts and our existing vast corpus of videos. And that audio, of course, can be music. It can be audio from another sort of kind of iconic canonical video that exists on YouTube. So that's a unique to YouTube feature in terms of going from videos to shorts. One of the other things that I think is cool is that it can go in the other direction too, which is shorts are oftentimes about music, right? We just did this big rollout with BTS and Permission to Dance you might've seen over the last few days. It should be really easy from that shorts to be able to click on the song that's sampled there, get to the music video that exists on YouTube, which is oftentimes, you know, a place where that video is getting hundreds of millions, oftentimes over a billion views. And so the connectivity between those two things can go in either direction. That is something you can expect to see more and more of. And so that's sort of what I would put it in terms of context, which is mobile creation first, and then what are the unique to YouTube features we can continue to build for something like Shorts? You mentioned creation tools. I think one of the underappreciated aspects of TikTok is that it is a very powerful video editor. That's the thing it presents to the user. And they roll out a bunch of AI filters. Those filters take on a life of their own. They're easy to use and repurpose. You, you see them on the top level of the videos. Are you heavily invested in that as well? That's an area where you can expect to continue to see us invest. And actually, that's an area where I also think we're going to take our cues from our creators. You know, one of the analogies that I like to use with, with my product team is, you know, our job vis-a-vis -vis creators is really to set the stage. We, our job is, is to actually create the world's best stage from an innovation standpoint. But it's our creators who basically perform on that stage. And, and that's where the magic comes from. And so... I think one of the things that we're already starting to see in terms of feedback from our creators is they really like the product, but they would like to see X, Y, Z. Some of that might be around effects. Some of that might be around things like filters, editing, all those types of capabilities that you described. Like I said, I think that we have, um, you know, the makings of a really fun and powerful product there, but we're by no means done. So, so the answer in short is yes, we should be doing a lot more there. Let me play with that metaphor for a little. When you say stage and, and players on the stage, a much more boring way of breaking that up is YouTube is a great distribution platform. 99% of the people who make YouTube videos make their videos in Adobe Premiere Pro or Final Cut or LumaFusion or whatever, and they use YouTube for distribution and monetization. TikTok has a distribution component, but it also has this powerful creation engine inside of it. YouTube has historically not spent a lot of time on creation tools. I think there was the YouTube capture app and it came and went. I had a lot of, I used it. I don't think a lot of other people used it. Now you're saying you've got to build up that creation skill set. Do you have that in house? Are you ready to go? Is there a product roadmap there? Are you waiting to figure it out? What does that look like? So the first thing I would say is that it is true that sort of the predominant use case, at least as it comes to videos that have, you know, wide distribution, lots of views on YouTube were videos that, as you described, were shot, edited elsewhere, then uploaded to YouTube. And, you know, YouTube Studio is about managing those videos on YouTube as opposed to having a suite of editing tools. So that's correct. But I think I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is kind of the genesis of shorts and things like that. And if you sort of zoom back out from just the shorts 
product and the shorts roadmap as it is. And if you think about sort of one of the core sort of product insights, I'll keep coming back to it, which is creation through mobile phones and the power that these phones bring to that process. And it's not just power in terms of like, you know, power tools in terms of what you described. It's actually also the flip side of power is ease of use, right? Like mm -hmm. because you can do things so powerfully on the phones, oftentimes on the client itself, you are enabling a whole suite of tools that can be also really easy for creators to use. And so, yes, that's an area that, um, you know, we want to continue to invest in. It's also an area where as we grow our creators that are, you know, producing predominantly on their mobile phones, we get feedback where it's awesome that you're doing this, but, you know, here's sort of the next set of things that you could be doing. So I really do look at through the lens of if a creator is getting started today, what are their expectations? How are they going to build their audience on YouTube? And part of that is enabling a set of tools on mobile phones. TikTok is a merging of distribution and creation. Instagram, I think historically, the first app that really merged a creative tool with distribution. YouTube is a big app. There's a lot going on in the YouTube app. You're adding more to it. Are you going to add the creation tools to the YouTube app or are they going to be in a different app? I don't think I, sh I can say specifically today. What I will say though is bringing it back to shorts specifically, a lot of the ways that you can enhance the video that you're, that you shot for your shorts, I think should live in that overall shorts workflow. Now, does that mean that there shouldn't be another set of capabilities for videos outside of shorts, et cetera? You know, I, I, I can't comment on that specifically today, but our goal is to continue to make the shorts experience more feature rich for video creators. The other part of shorts or reels or whatever is distribution, right? You, the mechanism, you just scroll up, you get the next video that's all happening automatically. I see a lot of repurposed TikTok videos on shorts. I see a lot of repurposed TikTok videos on reels. I know repurposed TikTok videos on Instagram reels bothers Instagram. Does it bother you? Um, I think that this, it's interesting. I would, I would tie this back to where we started the conversation. One of our core nor, uh, North Star principles in terms of product design at YouTube is doing what really works for our users and our viewers. And so that is, uh, the lens through which we look at it. And obviously we have lots of signals and lots of data that we get from our users there. Our goal there is to make it so that shorts content whatever form is easily and readily available to our users. That's why you see the short shelf right on the home feed. It's also why you see the tab that's there, the permanence of that, that shorts tab. So that's how we look at it from a user standpoint. From a creator standpoint, I mean, I think what I'll tell you is that those trends are changing on a regular basis. The amount of, A, first of all, new creators, but also creators that are coming back and producing original shorts on our platform. That number is going up and to the right on a week-on-week -week basis. And so that is another set of metrics that we look at, not just the viewer metrics, but also how easy, fun, kind of powerful it is, the tool set is for our creators. And like I said, we've begun the journey there. You know, we just launched globally just a couple of weeks ago, middle mm -hmm. of July. So there's still a lot more to be done, especially on the creator side to make it so that it's easier and more powerful and even more fun for them to produce original content for YouTube. But even with where our tools are today, that number continues to grow. When I say no, Instagram is not happy about it. What I mean specifically is they openly announced that videos with watermarks in them would get lower engagement 
than videos without watermarks, which is a very roundabout way of saying, hey, when you export a video from TikTok, it has a watermark. And if you repurpose it to Instagram, we're going to lower it, its engagement. Have you thought about similar moves? I mean, I, I think, again, the, 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 the high-level answer I'll give you there, Delay, is that, first of all, we make uh, decisions and tweaks and updates to our recommendation and ranking algorithms all the time, multiple times, you know, as you know, multiple times a month, just to make it so that that works better and better for our users. But we have a set of kind of core North Star principles and metrics by which we govern that. And they are driven by things like viewer satisfaction, engagement from our viewers, the feedback that we get directly from our viewers and those little surveys that you see in the app on a regular basis. And that is the lens through which we will make decisions on things like ranking of shorts, just like we do for quote unquote traditional videos on YouTube. The other thing is with Instagram particularly, they're very explicit with their creators that using their additional products boosts their overall engagement. So when they had stories, using stories boosted your engagement. Now they have reels, using reels boosts your engagement. You have a similar set of products. You have a similar, if not almost nearly overlapping base of creators on your platform who are used to that kind of dynamic. Are you saying to them, use shorts to boost your overall engagement? And if you don't, your engagement will go down. Because I hear that dynamic from creators all the time, that they feel like they have to expand into every service of the app to keep their core engagement high. We're, we don't, I mean, we don't talk about that in the explicit way that you're, you're describing. Again, I, I like to keep tying these back to kind of what the core principles are. And I gave you examples of that on the user side. On the creator side, it's about our goal there is to give every creator a voice. If the creator wants to do that through a two-hour documentary about a particular topic they're passionate about, then YouTube should be the place for that. If they want to do that through a 15-second short that mixes in their favorite, you know, hit from their favorite music artist, they should be able to do that. And that is, I think... It's sort of why I work at YouTube is that diversity of creators that we support. I think it's sort of the core mission of YouTube. And so when we have conversations with creators, it's about what are the sets of products and features and policies that we should put in place that allows them to do that. And, you know, we have lots of creators that are never going to try shorts and that's fine. We have lots of creators who have been video creators, vloggers on our platform for 10 years and are super, super excited about shorts. And that's awesome too. And so the way I look at it is all of these products can be successful and creators know what really works for them and their audiences. And our job is to address all of those sort of lanes, if you will, for our creators. We're talking here about a product like shorts, which I'm incredibly excited about. Uh, it's great to see the growth of it. But we've also had other products and other modes that have existed on YouTube for a long time, and not all creators take advantage of all of that. For example, we've had live products on YouTube for, for many, many years. Not all creators are comfortable or want to do live content, but lots and lots of creators do. And so the way my team thinks about it, I have a team that's focused on products for, that are live products for creators. They want to make those the best in class for creators all over the world, but you know, it's probably going to be a fraction of overall creators on YouTube that use those live products. But when they do, we want them to be the best. Yeah, I, I think it's important to be explicit, though, because a lot of the creators are talking about the professionals. This is their living, their livelihood. And I, I'm certain you feel this. The pressure to win the algorithm, to make more money or to make more stuff to feed the algorithm is very high. And the opacity of the algorithm 
drives people crazy. Like I, I always joke that the life cycle of every YouTuber, it like it hits a point where they all make a video about how they're mad at YouTube. It's just at the end of one road and then that road branches off. And I, I think the heart of that is the opacity of how the product works sometimes. How do you balance needing to change and be flexible with needing to be explicit and transparent about how your product affects people's money? Yeah. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a really, really interesting question. I would say a few things. I mean, and there's a lot to your question because you talked about money. There's the distribution component, obviously, to that as well. Our job is to be as clear as we possibly can about what works on YouTube, what doesn't work on YouTube. We have entire teams, business-facing teams, creator-facing teams that are focused on helping everything from creators getting started on our platform to how do they grow their audience? How do they think about monetization, not just ads, but a lot of the new monetization products that we've developed. So we do have teams that are working with our creators. We have ways of doing that, not just for our top creators, but we also have ways of doing that in a scaled fashion for our up and coming creators as well. Those are programs that we've invested in. Could we do more there? Yeah, of course. We could continue to do a lot more there. Every year, I feel like we get a little bit better in terms of explaining all of this and laying this out for our creators so that they can make informed choices. I also recognize that there's lots of things that creators have to think about. Distribution, monetization, our community guidelines, et cetera. So I do think it is my team's responsibility, you know, YouTube's responsibility overall. Susan, our CEO's talked about this too, of making it easier for our creators to navigate all of this. And so that's a journey that we're on. We need to continue to get better and better at it. But I will also say that, um, you know, we have creators that have been on the platform for three, five, 10 years who continue to build a living, continue to build an audience. They're some of the most kind of inspiring, amazing people in the world. They are attuned to their audience. They adjust with their audience. They get feedback from their audience on a regular basis, and they continue to produce uh, incredible, awesome content. One of the other areas, though, to your point, uh, which I think was implicit in your question, is how do we give creators the tools that they need to be able to, for example, if they want to take a break, right? Like something as simple as just like literally being able to take a vacation and the like. Uh, how do we give them the tools and the insight in terms of whether that actually has any impact in terms of how their videos show up in recommendations, et cetera. Those are always ongoing conversations with our creators. We get a lot of, uh, I mean, I personally get input from creators uh, along those dimensions. And we have a team on my team that's focused on building out those sets of tools for, for our creators. You know, we're talking a lot about sort of distribution and monetization. One of the big areas of feedback that I get from our creators related to what you're saying that, that factors into kind of their overall experience with YouTube is how they interact with their fans. And what I mean by that are the comments below videos. And that is an area that is oftentimes incredibly rich. Like you can see some of the most amazing conversations there around, you know, picking apart like a physics video or something like that. But it's also an area where I feel like sometimes our creators in the past had been getting overwhelmed, right? Just with the sheer volume, for example, or even sometimes the tone of the comments. And so we've built a whole slew of tools to help creators manage that, both in an automated fashion, like moderated comments, a much better ranking of those types of comments, et cetera. And so that's an example of how we've taken feedback from our creators and tried to turn them into tools that allow creators to have a much better experience managing their channels.
Okay, we're back. This is where we really started to dig a little deeper into how YouTube as a product can affect creators. From good things like there are ways to tip creators if you like their videos, to the not so good, like not telling creators what changes are made to the recommendation algorithm. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. One of the theses I have on the show is that everywhere I look, I see distribution platforms having a direct effect on the kind of media that is made. And this, I think this is historically true, right? Like 12 inch singles made for longer disco songs, like just down the line, this has been true. I look at YouTube and I look at all the things you're describing and all the pressures and the ad pressures. And I talk to YouTubers and it's, it comes up every time. The combination of rules around monetization and the goal to win recommendation algorithms, people's attention means that YouTube titles are always hyperbolic. The thumbnails are over the top and videos kind of always hit 10 minutes. So you can get one of the mid roll slots in, or maybe more of the mid roll slots in that pressure. It's just like created that product, right? Like I think I could describe abstractly that YouTube video to anyone and they can immediately think of a video they've seen that fits that exact mold. Do you think you need to ease the pressure on the product? So it stops producing that kind of thing. Because I'm not sure everyone loves that kind of video. Yeah, um, I think that uh, the way that I think about it is ultimately the way the YouTube system works. So the way our product works is a reflection of 
again, sort of some of these core sort of North Star metrics, you know, how satisfied our viewers are. Are they getting what they want out of their connection with their creators? Similarly for creators, right? We have similar ways of looking at it. And so two things that I'll call out that are even up-leveling the way that you described it that I think about are, do we feel like the core milestones for our creators are correct and are they healthy, right? So for example, are there lots of creators that are getting started on YouTube? Is it dramatically harder to get started? Is it easier? How do we measure that? What's the velocity of creators getting started? I can tell you that that's something that not just uh, my creator teams, but all of YouTube teams uh, look at carefully. So that's sort of at the beginning of the journey, if you will. We also, to your, the second part of your question around monetization, one of the kind of key milestones we look at is how many creators on our platform, new creators are achieving what I would call sort of being able to have a sustainable living on our platform. And we actually measure that not just, you know, here in the U.S., but around the world. And we adjust that according to, you know, kind of purchasing power parity and the like. Those are not perfect because they're sort of measuring sort of snapshots in time. But uh, again, sort of just to kind of peel the onion back a little bit, those are things that I look at pretty closely because I think they are fundamental ways of answering the questions that you're describing, right? Like, are we actually still creating a place where new people with new ideas can come, get started, find an audience? And once they find that audience, are we building products and capabilities that allow them to stop whatever else they were doing and actually, you know, earn a living on YouTube if they want to become full-time YouTubers. And those are metrics we look at literally on a kind of weekly, monthly, quarterly basis to make sure that uh, we're doing the right thing by our creators. When I talk to creators, the feedback that I get is around, what are you guys doing? What are the new types of tools and capabilities you're building? to help me continue to connect better with my audience. Every single question or feature requests I get ultimately sort of boils back down to that in some flavor. And there might be a monetization objective behind it. There might be just a growing an audience objective behind it, but it really is about connectivity with the audience. And so I gave you the genesis of shorts. That's one example. Everything I talked to you about with respect to comments and how creators can manage that, it's all about connectivity to audience. Even a lot of the the monetization products we developed. And now we have, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, there's ads, but we have eight or nine other products that allow creators to monetize on our platform. And the fundamental thread to all of them is actually connecting with the audience, whether it's super chat or super stickers or channel memberships. And so that's always sort of, for me, the fundamental question that I get when I, when I speak with our creators. Yeah. But let me ask you about those other stuff. And then I, I really want to talk about content moderation because it's the other thing you run, which is deeply fascinating. We had Jack Conte on from Patreon. He's like, I started Patreon because I sold a music video to YouTube. Or I put one on YouTube. I was getting no return. Now I have this other platform. You need an independent relationship with your audience that's outside of the platforms. And I hear this argument a lot. You've built a suite of products where the entire relationship a person has could be through YouTube. Everything they do comes through YouTube and one of its products. You run a business. Do you think it's smart for a creator to sort of have one supplier, one platform vendor, or should creators be distributed? Um, I, I will say that I think it's great that creators have multiple ways that they can generate revenue. I think one of the things, and you know, if you talk to YouTube employees, I think many of them will tell you this, what's really cool and inspiring about YouTube is that it creates this platform for YouTubers 
where of course they can monetize on YouTube. And I gave you like super detailed metrics in terms of how we actually measure the, the health of that for our creators. But lots of creators start on YouTube, but then they diversify in terms of their revenue streams. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure, yeah, you, I know you talk to YouTubers all the time. Many of them have written books. <laughs> Many of them have shows on other platforms or on television or what have you. Many of them have built audiences elsewhere. And all of that is awesome from our perspective on YouTube. What I also hear from creators often is that their core, sort of most authentic, sort of most deeply engaged, leaned forward audience, if you will, is on YouTube. That I hear that over and over from our largest creators to up and coming creators to literally, um, you know, creators who've only been on the platform for a few months. That is the reason why we also want to give them the choice to be able to monetize beyond ads on YouTube itself. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't or can't use other products or capabilities to earn a living on our platform. But what I hear is that sort of seamless integration within YouTube with their core audience is what's powerful. And I'll connect it to what I said previously, which is the reason why these monetization tools have worked, in my view, so well for our creators is because they're not just about helping the creators make money. They also help them enhance their connection with their fans on YouTube. So look at a product like Super Chat or Super Stickers. Yes, it's a way for a creator to generate revenue from a live chat that's happening on a stream, but it's also a way for them to connect with particular specific users, specific fans, and they give them shout outs and they build a community that way. And those two things are reinforcing. And I think that that is what's really cool about all of these monetization products that we've built. Do you think of those people as the creator's audience or a YouTube audience or, I mean, there's a big, YouTube is also a search engine. Right, you can show up on YouTube and you're not part of anyone's audience. You're just bouncing between home repair videos. How do you think about the audience? Does it belong to the creators? Does it belong to you? Is it a mix? Um, I think that, I mean, I, it's, it's sort of, you know, I, I feel like that audience wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the connection they have with those creators. I mean, you know, I have three kids, like they have, you know, their favorite sets of creators on our platform. like. You know, like I said, back to my stage analogy, we want to build the world's best stage, but it really is about the people in the audience connecting with the people that are on the stage. That is the magic of YouTube. And that is our creators uh, fan base, the audience that they've built. I mean, our creators say that all the time. We enable it through our platform. Our platform allows them to get scale. One of the cool things that I like about a creator's experience on a platform like YouTube is they can share an idea and it can be received by somebody on the other side of the world in a way that's incredibly powerful and, and inspiring. And that happens on YouTube, uh, all the time. And so that's really the way I think about it. And the tools that we built are along those lines too. You know, you gave an example I thought was interesting around people searching on YouTube, you know, how to fix my, whatever, garage door, what have you. I would say there too, there's a means to actually create a connection between me as the viewer and that particular creator, I had to make an adjustment to the water heater in my house. There was an awesome video on YouTube that enabled me to do it. It probably saved me like two hours of time and probably several hundred dollars, right, to do that. And we just launched a product actually called Super Thanks because it was certainly worth $10 for me to that creator because that creator like delivered enormous value for me. Am I going to watch that creator's videos on, you know, heater repair every week? <laughs> Probably not, but, but, but I still connected with that creator. 
And so that's an example of another monetization product, Super Thanks, that's about connectivity, but also allowing that creator to make money. And so that's, that's sort of how I think about it. That's all very direct, right? Even the advertising product in traditional YouTube is very direct, right? You watch a video, there's some breaks, the ads play, some percentage of that revenue goes to the creator. With shorts, it's, there's not a one-to-one, right? You, you watch shorts, you scroll, an interstitial plays, and then this new shorts program is going to deliver bonus payments somehow from $100 to $10,000. How does that program actually work? How do you determine the value that creators get? Yeah, I mean, I'll say a few things uh, for, about it. Um, first, it is really kind of a first step. That's why we've described it as a finite shorts fund, right? I think it's $100 million through the end of next year because it is a means by which I think our goal or my team's goal is to develop what we hope will be the long-term sort of scalable monetization program for shorts. So I think you should put it in that context, which is a way to get going and to actually really start to figure out a way to, to do precisely what you're saying, describe how monetization can work for shorts creators. Because you're right, the experience is very different, right? Like you're essentially consuming a feed of shorts and so that the model has to work differently. And so the way it's going to work in the near term is, you know, you obviously have kind of the standard sort of eligibility criteria, right? In good standing in terms of our community guidelines, you know, over 13 years old. We're starting in 10 countries, although we want to expand that very quickly. And every single month, based on, you know, viewership metrics, engagement metrics at the channel level for those shorts creators, and you have to obviously have created a short in the last, I think, 180 days is, is the the cutoff we have right now, you will then qualify for a payment, which as you described is between $100 and $10,000. That criteria could change, but it's roughly in the, on the order of, you know, viewership and engagement. But that's one of the things we want to learn is how do we actually measure that well? How do we measure that in a way that can be transparent with our creators? And I think a lot of that learning will come about through the shorts fund. It might vary uh, regionally because Audiences are different in uh, different regions. So it's kind of the, the addressable sort of viewership is different. And so those are all of the types of things that we're looking at, but that's roughly how the program is designed to work. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Neil Mohan. Okay, I want to make sure we spend some time at the end here on trust and safety. It is, as far as I can tell, it is unique that the trust and safety organization reports to you as the head of product. Why is that? It's hard to imagine a YouTube product experience without taking into account how the community guidelines impact our viewers and our creators. We've spent the last hour talking about all of these products and features and the decisions that go behind creating them. Well, I would argue that a core part of that overall product experience for our entire ecosystem, viewers, creators, advertisers, are our community guidelines and how they work. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing is a little bit more subtle, but I think in some ways is even more critical in terms of how YouTube works, which is when we talk about content moderation or community guidelines or what have you, we tend to focus on the very, very small portion of what happens there, which is videos that stay up or come down on the platform. And that is not by any means the be all and end all of how content manifests itself for our users. What I mean by that is it's not just about videos that come down or stay up. It's also about how our recommendation systems work. It's about how ranking systems work. It's about how our search uh, systems work. It's also about how creators, you know, 99.9% of whom are looking to do the right thing are rewarded. In terms of our responsibility to our ecosystem, to all of our viewers as a global platform, the way I think about it is this four R's framework that we have, you know, again, going back to sort of first principles and frameworks, and only the first R is about removing content that's violative of our community guidelines. But we have three other R's, raising up authoritative content. You've seen this in the context of, you know, the pandemic that we're living through. We have information panels. We have a COVID news shelf that runs on your home feed every single day that has videos from authoritative news sources, from health authorities, et cetera. So we raise up authoritative content when it comes to people looking for news or medical misinformation, critical information like that. We also reduce content in our recommendations and ranking algorithms when they are not clearly community guideline violative, but could be borderline for other reasons, you know, harmful misinformation, et cetera, where oftentimes the lines are very blurry and not clear, right? What's the line between political speech and misinformation? We might reduce the recommendations of that type of content in users' users' feeds. That's kind of the third R. And we bring it all together with the fourth R, which is we call reward, which is orienting the monetization resources towards those creators that are looking to do the right thing, build an audience, build a business on YouTube. And so I just would say that all four of those R's are actually what govern kind of the overall experience for our users. And we tend to always focus the conversation on the first R, but don't realize that those other three R's oftentimes play an order or two orders of magnitude more impactful role in terms of number of videos on YouTube than just what we remove. And all of that is seamlessly integrated into how the product works. Everything I described to you is around, you know, our ranking algorithms in terms of how does the UX works? Like where do, where do these shelves show up? How do they show up? What's the language of them? Can they click through, et cetera? So 
how our monetization programs work. Those are all products that we build for our creators. And so I think actually viewing them as two separate things is actually doing a disservice to the entire ecosystem. It, it is creating a situation where you can't actually develop the right set of products and services you need to address this challenge in a holistic fashion. You just focus sort of myopically on one sliver of it that I would argue is actually in some ways maybe the most high profile because it's very clear to see, but in, in other ways, the least impactful in terms of what's actually happening on the platform. So that's it's a bit of a long answer to your question, but I wanted to give you that full color. Let's focus on two of the R's, raise and reduce. That's the recommendation algorithm. That's, we're going to show more people good videos, authoritative videos. We're going to show fewer people the videos that are fuzzy. How big is the team that runs the recommendation algorithm? So I can't get into the specific numbers of the team, but there's, you know, there's dozens of engineers and product managers and uh, UX designers who are making tweaks and improvements to our algorithms on a regular basis. By the way, one thing that I will just clarify is it's not just about recommendations and ranking in our, in our home feed on search, et cetera. It's also about products and features that we bring to bear like information panels or search result panels. So for example, if you search for COVID information or coronavirus information on, on YouTube, you will get a full panel that has information, including text from um, health authorities, whether it's the CDC or you know, at other parts of the world, the World Health Organization or whoever their national health authority is. And so it's not just about how our recommendation algorithms work. It's about how the entire product works. In fact, that COVID panel that you've probably seen underneath videos or in feeds in many places, I think has received on the order of 600 billion impressions since, you know, March of last year. And we're going to continue to run uh, because we believe it's a good source of information as users are making decisions with respect to the health of their family, whether they should get vaccinated or not. And so it's really raise and reduce our yes about recommendations, but they're also about all of these other products that we give to our users. Yeah, I, I would put all this in the category of discovery. You've got a lot of discovery features, but I want to stay focused on recommendations. I'm assuming there's a single main PM for recommendations, a product manager for recommendations. What are her KPIs? When you do OKRs at Google, what are her KPIs for the recommendations algorithm? So we have, um, so what I'll say is it is uh, our recommendations team is a, is a fairly large team across YouTube. So it's not just one product manager. There's a number of them, but I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a, a few things. And, and um, you know, maybe to give you even, even more insight is I'll, I'll actually sort of give you sort of kind of the full picture. So if you, and you know, you've been obviously very familiar with YouTube since the early days, you'll remember that in the very early days, you know, one of the things that we looked at were things like views of a video, right? Is that as a signal of whether that video was interesting or not, or what have you, that was obviously not sufficient, right? Because it would lead to some of the things that you mentioned earlier, like, you know, whatever, clickbaity thumbnails or what have you. And then we evolved to measuring not just the views, but the viewership of the videos. Like, are people actually watching the entire video or what have you? That sort of factored into the overall KPIs of how that team thought about it. We've evolved since then, uh, recognizing that it's not just about, you know, that type of engagement. It's about satisfaction, long-term satisfaction of our viewers. And that's why you see some of those questions that you get directly in the feed that ask you how you felt about that video, that channel, or what have you. That was sort of an ev evolution. And so KPIs then evolve around sort of satisfaction of our users. 
And then we've layered another on top of that, which is related to this overall responsibility framework that I described, which is how do we measure uh, whether we are doing a good job in our recommendation algorithms to raise up authoritative content or reduce, you know, some of this borderline content or however you want to call it. And so we have KPIs around that. One of the ones uh, that combines a number of these R's is one that we actually released a couple of months ago now. It's called Violative View Rate and VVR for short. And I think the the latest number that we had was, I think, somewhere on the order of like 0.16 to 0.18%. I mean, it, it fluctuates, of course. But that is a core North Star metric that this, t- this team would be, um, you know, OKR'd on. What it measures is, in a sample-based way, the number of videos, you know, weighted by viewership or views or what have you, that were deemed to be sort of violative of, of our, you know, community guidelines. And of course, the goal of our teams, the KPI, to use your term, is to drive that down to as near as possible to zero. That is a challenging task. We've driven that number down dramatically over the course of the last, you know, year and a half, two years since we've been, you know, measuring that in, in earnest. But that's an example of something that that team would get OKR'd on and treat as one of their core North Star metrics uh, for the year. One of the big criticisms of recommendations, I know you know this, I'm sure you have an answer for it, is the radicalization funnel. We hear about it over and over and over again with YouTube. We've heard there have been big internal debates inside of YouTube about how the recommendation algorithm fueled radicalization. Is that something you're measuring? Is that something you have a handle on and you can turn it off and show people more viewpoints or keep them out of the radicalization funnel? Um, so, I mean, as you can imagine, there's, there's a lot to that question. You know, we have looked at this internally. There have been external studies on this. There was one a few months ago that was, uh, I think, a joint study at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard that didn't find any of this. They felt that YouTube viewership was really just kind of a reflection of media consumption habits in the world in general. And so there's been studies in both directions. You know, it's obviously a really hard thing to measure because each individual user's journey is different. That's not to say that I'm dismissing any individual viewers or users' own experience. I'll just point back to the fact that the best way I know how to address all of this in a holistic sense is to really focus on those two pillars of raise and reduce. That is a way that we can determine sort of what our North Star principles and metrics should be and really work towards those. And so, yes, I look at things like, are we doing a good job of raising up authoritative content, especially in those contexts that I described? It is a continuous journey. I will be the first to say that we are not perfect and we can always get better. We also do the same thing on on the reduced side. I gave you a sort of a very detailed explanation of sort of how that works. And so that's what my team is focused on kind of on a weekly basis. And we do measure ourselves on those in terms of whether we're hitting those metrics. I gave you VVR as one example. There's others uh, on the flip side, on the authoritative side. And that is the best way I know how to make sure that our recommendations are doing what we think is the right thing by our viewers and our creators. The other major YouTube content moderation system that is of particular interest to me because I was a very bad copyright lawyer in the past. I was not any good at this, but I did it. Uh, it's content ID. And when I talk to YouTubers, right, like right at the top of the list is the automated copyright system that exists in YouTube. Some of it's out of your hands, right? There's the digital millennium copyright app. There's notice and takedown. There's a lot going on there. 
but it is the largest automated copyright enforcement system in the history of the world. How do you think it's going? Uh, you know, it's, um, I would say that, um, again, just from a product and technology standpoint, I, I do think that it is one of the most critical aspects of the YouTube experience for our creators, but also for our rights holders. And in some sense, it's what has enabled a lot of the incredible sort of user experiences that happen on YouTube. Again, like I've said with our other product areas, all of these products are capabilities that we want to continue to make better year on year, kind of month on month. I would say that when it comes to content ID, we really do try to strike the balance as best as possible. You mentioned some of the constraints, of course, that, you know, this whole world exists under. Again, tying it back to principles, our core principle there is trying to balance the needs of rights holders with content creators on our platform. For example, if we're having a product review discussion around something like content ID, it is kind of trying to balance that, that sort of core set of principles. Where do you think content ID needs to improve right now? I think one, uh, I think that, uh, one area that we have been focused on is really around ease of use and transparency, right? You described DMCA and you described all of these sort of constraints. That's a really complicated world, uh, that exists out there. There's lots and lots of lawyers that are very focused on it in terms of both protecting rights, creating fair use, use cases, et cetera. So I think one of the things that, you know, YouTube has done, and I think we can continue to do is just offer more transparency on that in our tool set. Uh, so how do we build, you know, kind of those capabilities for our creators and, and rights holders in a seamless way? We've done that. I also think that, um, accessibility of the tools, that's an area that we've been very focused on. I think you've seen over just over the last couple of years, how we've expanded access to those tools in a way that works for a much larger set of creators. So those are the types of things that I think you can see us continue to invest in, you know, going into next year and beyond. Okay. I want to tie these two ideas together and then I have a little lightning round for you. I have a, like a, a laundry list of feature requests for you. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> content ID though is the largest automated content moderation system at scale. Right, it has a bunch of constraints, but it runs and it does stuff, and people can issue strikes, and it is contentious. And you probably know more about the pitfalls of automated content moderation than anybody, except for maybe the people on your team who actually run it. Next to that, you have a recommendations algorithm, you have principles around it, you have community guidelines, you have AI content moderation right? It's all building towards another kind of automated moderation system. What have you learned from content ID that's going to shape the future of your community guidelines moderation? And what are you going to avoid? Um, I think that's, that's a really interesting, uh, lens to, to look at it. I, I would say, um, the common thread between those two pieces is what I believe technology is good at, what, you know, machine learning classifiers can do well is around scale and speed. That's, you know, kind of sounds obvious, but like that is where a lot of the focus here is. And in the realm of content ID, I believe that it has served rights holders as well as content creators well. As I described, there's always more we can do, but in general, that has been a system that has enabled billions of dollars worth of economic value for both of those constituents over the course of many years on our platform. I would say the difference between something like that and the broad realm of content moderation is 
machine learning and algorithms can do sort of that first part around scale and speed. But I have also learned that it is important to have a highly trained group of individuals all over the world to be able to make the actual decisions, the nuanced decisions around content. What machine learning classifiers are really good at is identifying a set of videos or, or comments or what have you that are candidates for potentially being violative of our community guidelines. But where they often fall short is in terms of the actual decisions about whether that candidate video is actually truly violative or not. My learning over the course of the last three to four years of really being focused on this, and again, this is one of the reasons why it's such a core part of our product organization is those two things are fundamentally tied together. In order to achieve what we are looking to achieve and drive that sort of violative view rate number down as low as possible, it really has to be a combination of machines because they bring us scale and speed, but also highly trained individuals that can take our enforcement guidelines and apply them to videos in a systematic way, you know, thousands and thousands of times a day to achieve the best possible results. Does that moderator workforce work for Google? Is that part of your team? Is that contractors? Uh, we have kind of multiple components of this. So, but, but at the highest level, we do have employees of YouTube that are part of that team. And then we also have an extended workforce in, you know, offices all over the world where we work with partners to really kind of wrap that up in terms of, of scale and numbers. And they're all incredibly highly trained, always going through training in terms of new policies and enforcement guidelines. Also are provided resources in terms of helping address a lot of the challenges of the work, because it is obviously very challenging work. And so, so it's a combination of, you know, full-time YouTube employees, as well as our uh, extended workforce. One of the things I hear from people in sort of the larger conversation around platform moderation is we spend all of our time looking at Twitter and all of our time yelling at Facebook and YouTube kind of slides there along in the background. And I hear it. It's a frustration I hear from academics and, and even other reporters that YouTube doesn't seem to get the attention that Twitter, in particular, Twitter gets. Are you still paying attention to the debates, though, around 2.30, around the guidelines for misinformation? Does that influence you, or are you waiting for someone in Congress to wake up and haul you in front of uh, a hearing? Uh, I mean, it's a... Uh, the, all, everything I talked about with respect to our responsibility as a global platform is something that I pay attention to, Susan pays attention to. It is literally my number one priority. It mm -hmm. is the thing that I pay attention to more than anything else. And the reason I pay attention to it is less for the reasons you're describing and more because I believe it is a fundamental part of our viewers and our creators and our partners' experience on YouTube. It is core to how they experience the product. So it is my number one priority. It is the highest set of OKRs and goals that I have and my team has. And that's the reason why, why we're focused on it. It's the reason why we have, you know, thousands of people working on it every single day. All right. I'm going to let you off easy with lightning around product. Like now you just have to tell me you can't over and over again, you can't talk about future features. Don't worry. It's going to be easy. <laughs> okay. You ready? It's lightning round. So you got to go fast. YouTube wasn't in 4k on the Apple TV for the longest time. And now it is what changed. What was that fight with Apple? Like, I don't think I can get into the specifics of that, but I'll just say that our goal is to try to bring all of these features to all of our surfaces as quickly as possible. And sometimes we're just constrained by kind of the reality of the various platforms. But the goal from a product standpoint is to try to bring it as 
quickly as we can to all of our surfaces. Did you win that argument or did they? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I can get into specifics of, of any of the ongoing conversations we have. I'm going to note for the listener that Neil is grinning and I, you can just interpret that however you want. Two, when can I watch YouTube at 1.5 speed on a television? Because I cannot do that on my Chromecast or my Apple TV. Uh, it is a good question. So I can't, again, I can't give you specific timelines, but, uh, <laughs> but you should know that that's not the first time I've heard that request. All right, I'll put it at the top of the pile. YouTube viewership on TVs, smart TVs in particular, skyrocketing. You also make YouTube TV. So now you have two apps with very different business models that are competitive. Do you think core YouTube will overtake YouTube TV? Uh, overtake in terms of viewership on living room devices? Is that Or just replace, right? Like, does YouTube on television just replace television? That is not a lightning round question. That is, that is <laughs> it's a, a yes or a no. Answer. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's one way to answer I, that. That I, is a lightning round question. I don't see that in any time in the near future. There's two different use cases there, as you know, through your own experience. Linear broadcast or cable is still very different, you know, primarily driven by things like views and sports from, you know, video on demand world of YouTube. Stay tuned for how we're thinking about those things kind of in the, in the future, but today they're very different experiences. YouTube TV, another product that you are responsible for, recapitulates a cable bundle. The price of it is going back up towards the price of a standard cable bundle. What's the future of that product? Does it remain a big linear TV bundle or are you going to disaggregate it in some way? I shouldn't talk about sort of how we're thinking about it in the future. What I will say is there's the economic realities of how content pricing works and the like. A lot of what you've seen in YouTube TV in terms of the new channels that we've added have been driven by user demand. Users have asked for that content to be explicitly added to the bundle, quote unquote, as it exists on YouTube TV. So that's what you've seen there. We are also very focused on making it easy for users to add add-ons, to give them the flexibility of what else they're looking for in the package. And we're also, you've probably seen this, but we're also doing more around content vertical type bundles or even feature type bundles, right? Like you saw that with the 4K bundle on YouTube TV. So we're trying to bring more choice to our users. A lot of it is frankly just driven by the feedback that we hear from, from YouTube use, uh, TV users, but we're not, there's not like another any sort of price hike or anything in the near term. When can I watch YouTube TV picture in picture on my phone or my iPad? That is not something that I think I have a timeline on. And there's more to that than just some of the technology enablement. But I don't, I don't think I have a timeline to give you on that today. That's a contract problem, not a technology problem. I may not have all the thing, all the details on that specifically, but there's lots of pieces that go into that. But uh, again, like I said, I know that's something that that our users users have asked for. Uh, are you looking for that around normal picture-in-picture use cases like sports or? Yeah, that's your that's the core use case. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Okay, last one. I run my team. There's things I want. I can't get them to the top of my pile. You're the boss of YouTube. What's the feature you want? that you can't get to the top of the pile. Oh, wow. Um, that's really interesting. We spent a lot of the conversation talking about this, uh, is in the realm of shorts, for example, as I said, it's not a feature complete product. There's lots of things that, uh, I would like to see. I am by no means a talented creator at all, but I play around obviously with all of our products. So, you know, you mentioned some of the ones that I would like to see, which are better filter, better editing tools, et cetera, for that product. And of course, I'd like to see it sooner rather than later. 
but I also know our teams are, are working on it. That's probably the, probably the latest and greatest thing that I've called out. But, you know, I think that if you asked me that two weeks ago, I probably would have said a different set of features. Well, we'll have you back in two weeks and we'll ask it again. <laughs> All right. I end, uh, this is, this is the big app. What's next for YouTube? I mean, we touched on, on so much here. I think that, uh, I'll just say at the highest level, you should, like I said, you should continue to see us invest both on the creator side and the viewer side around the concept of mobile creation shorts as one example of that. We talked a lot about that. So continue to see that. Another big area of investment is just continue to develop streams for monetization for our creators. I talked about super thanks. We literally just launched that like a week or two ago. Uh, there's more to be done there. One area that we didn't talk about that's related to that, that I'm really excited about because it also helps connect viewers and creators is shopping and commerce. That is something that I think I'm particularly excited about. And then I will say that, um, the thing that I will, I know for sure on the overall roadmap that will remain at the top of it going into next year also is all of the work that we do from a product standpoint, policy standpoint around our responsibility efforts. So that's, that's one thing I know, even though we're not in planning season for next year, that I think will be at the top of the list will be that because it always is. Great. Well, Neil, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. It's a great conversation. Thank you, Neil. It's great to be here. Thanks again to Neil Mohan for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.